0: Many of you may be familiar with Phyllis Tickle. She is the founding editor of the religion department of Publishers Weekly. She's a writer, a scholar of religion in America, and she's an Episcopalian. She is perhaps best known for her work on emergence Christianity. According to Tickle and to others, every 500 years the church has what she refers to as a great big rummage sale. In other words, we come to a point where we have to somehow mesh our changing culture and our changing knowledge with our religious tradition. We rethink our beliefs. We rework our understanding of Christianity. Each time this happens, Each time we grapple with our faith and we have to expand in new directions, there are some things in our tradition that we have to let go of. But there are also some real treasures that we uncover in our tradition, things that we've forgotten. At the end of each rummage sale in the church, exciting new forms of Christianity arise. The original form of Christianity finds itself strengthened and revitalized and the gospel spreads. But even though the final outcome of all these rummage sales can be quite positive, reconciling our religious beliefs with new knowledge and new experiences can still be a very painful process. Phyllis Tickle often gives this example. As we know, in 1492, Columbus sailed across the Atlantic Ocean. Now, to be honest, even before that, people knew at some level in their psyche that the earth wasn't flat. They had watched ships sail over the horizon and out of sight before, and they knew that these ships didn't fall off the earth. But when Columbus sailed to America, the fact that the earth wasn't flat became public knowledge. It became something with which one had to reckon. Tickle tells about a letter written at the time by an Englishman who was distraught with the idea of a round earth, having been told his whole life that one day he would rise from the dead and be united with his Lord in heaven, a round earth was cause for despair. Because if Jesus ascended to Jerusalem to heaven from Jerusalem down here, and fifteen hundred years later I die in England and ascend from that location. You see the problem. How will I ever meet back up with my Lord and Savior? Now the whole issue may seem a little bit silly to us, but for people of good faith 500 years ago, people who took what the church had taught for centuries and held it close to their heart, for such people the implications of a round earth had serious consequences for their faith. This past Thursday was the Feast of the Ascension, a day 40 days after Easter, a day when we celebrate Jesus being taken up into heaven as the disciples stood there gazing up at the sky. And today is known as Ascension Sunday within the church. Now, to be honest, the Feast of the Ascension is a difficult feast day for us to wrap our modern minds around because it doesn't fit with our modern cosmology with our understanding of the way the universe is structured. As I've said before, in this day when scientific knowledge reigns supreme, it's hard to escape that obvious question, where did Jesus of Nazareth actually go? Since the farthest star in our galaxy is approximately 95,000 light years away, if Jesus were to travel at the speed of light, he would still have about 93,000 years to go before he left the Milky Way. And I realize that the argument can be made that God, even in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, is not subject to the same speed barrier that we are. Or maybe that heaven is not a matter of distance from us, but instead resides in another dimension. But this is the point that I'm making. Our scientific mapping of the universe can make it difficult for us to conceive of an event such as the Ascension. N.T. Wright is a bishop in the Church of England and a traditional Anglican scholar. And even he has a little bit of trouble seeing the Ascension story as a straightforward historical account. He writes this explanation. The language of heaven and earth though it could be used to denote sky on one hand and terra firma on the other, was regularly employed in a sophisticated theological manner. It was used to denote the parallel and interlocking universes inhabited by the creator God on the one hand and humans on the other. Now I'm not sure if the way we've traditionally understood what happened that day as the disciples stood there watching Jesus rise out of sight still works for all of us. I don't know. But I do know that we can't forget this feast in the church calendar. We can't relegate the Ascension to the pile of old items in a rummage cell that need to be sold or even just thrown away. The Ascension is one of our treasures. And it speaks a truth to us that we need to hear as much today as we have ever needed to hear it. See, the ascension is the culmination of the entire narrative of Jesus' life. From the moment Jesus is born in Bethlehem to the time he's taken up into the heavens, the incarnation speaks to us of God's desire for us, of God's longing for fellowship with humankind. And the fulfillment of that desire when played out in the shape of a human life is the ascension. The ascension reveals to us the incredible truth that through Christ, God has brought all of humankind into the very heart of God's life. God and creation are bound together not just for the 33 years that Jesus lived on this earth, but for all eternity. As N.T. Wright observes, The universe of the Creator God on the one hand, and that of humans on the other, are not two separate universes. They are inextricably bound one to the other. Next week we will celebrate Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. I don't think we can look at Pentecost apart from the Ascension, because they're really two sides of the same coin. Just as humanity is taken up into the life of God at the ascension, the Holy Spirit comes to reside within creation at Pentecost. Us in God, God in us. As Jesus said in last week's gospel reading, I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. On that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Us in God. God in us. Almost 2,000 years ago, the disciples stood gazing up into the heavens as Jesus ascended. Two men dressed in white appeared and said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? Maybe those same words are meant for us today. Maybe we too occasionally need to be reminded to look for God not just up in heaven where we now live with God but in the world around us where God lives in us, in the beauty of the earth, in the ordinariness of day-to-day lives, in simple elements like bread and wine, and in the faces of those Jesus came to redeem. Maybe opposites like up and down melt into one when we talk about God's love for the world. I'd like to close by sharing a poem by Michael Coffey and the poem is titled simply Ascension. Where is up for you now that you have slipped from our sight but still find your way into our being? We have been above the clouds and planted lunar footprints and watched Voyager move beyond the heliosphere. All we saw was a vast lonely world not a trace of your friendly face not even that visage in the rocks of Mars. So where is up for you, anyway? Is it like a hypercube that we can't construct in our three D world, but only see shadows of? Or is it a furtive movement within a shifting expanse in space time, so that you move beyond the infinite and wormhole your way back to us? And so your up has become a down into our bodies and minds and here's and now's and bread and wine and thanksgiving. Amen.